Welcome everyone to the first of the four sessions this term, in which our focus is mainly on revelations in Chinese, Indian and Mongolian religions. Full details of the program can be found on our website. Next term, we will be having two further Tibetological speakers, Renia Langala and Per Kaverna, and the details of their talks will soon be added to the website. Our first speaker for this year, Vincent Gousser, needs little introduction. He's already well known in Oxford and across the world as a scholar of Chinese religions. Vincent is professor of Taoism and Chinese religion at the École Pratique des Hautitudes in Paris, and is also editor of Tun Pao, a major journal in Sinology and president of the French Association for Chinese Studies. Most recently, he has focused his research on late imperial Chinese religious practices and the production and dissemination of religious texts. His recent book, Making the Gods Speak, published by Harvard Asia Center in 2022, is widely acclaimed and I recommend you all to read it. So Vincent, over to you. The production, Sorry, the production of yeah, revelation and, 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 and divine literature uh, across cultures, uh, including within East Asia, but not limited to East Asia. Um, so even though it might at some point be a rather heavily sinological book, I attempted to reach out and, and try to start building comparative frameworks for discussing across uh, religion and, and culture and languages. And uh, the fact that uh, Rob and Anna and Yegor very kindly invited me to uh, present this book today in, in this uh, treasure seminar is the proof that maybe this this is an idea that has some future. I mean, comparing uh, ritual means of producing revelations. I'm really extremely excited about it and warmest thanks again for the invitation. Um, I will now be sharing my screen because um, I have a PowerPoint presentation here. Good, this should be working. Yes. Um, so, uh, because this is a book that tr tries to cover a lot of ground, arguably probably too much, and this is a short like 30, 40 minutes presentation, I'm going to run a lot of things across a long period of time, about 2000 years. Um, but hopefully we can have more uh, specific focused questions during the Q&A session. Um, so I will not go into detail during the presentation, but I'll try to give a general sense of what I was trying to achieve, or at least uh, say the first word about with this book. So um, deep out of point, or maybe uh, rather deep out of points, um, I wrote this book as I was already uh, working for uh, a number of years on uh, Chinese uh, religious literature. We have uh, an ongoing website, open access website project mapping the whole of Chinese uh, religious literature, which is saying quite a lot. And a good part of this um, <clears throat> religious literature circulating in, in book form or manuscript or now in digital form is revealed, ascribed to the gods uh, through many different ways. And um, so this project is trying to make sense of uh, uh, 
the, the ways these books were produced and try to come uh, up with an, uh, a more useful or workable typology of revelation that we have been, and scholars of Chinese religion have been using for a number of years, which really just reveals, right? Or uh, often mediumistic. And even though some of this literature is in fact a product of uh, spirit possession through spirit mediums, not all of it is. So um, <clears throat> what I try to do is map the terrain, even though I have more uh, expertise of more uh, experience of working with certain kind of texts, especially spirit writing during the second millennium, but I still try to place it in a, a, as large as possible a framework of all kinds of different types of uh, <clears throat> revelation. Um, it very much seems that the very idea of revelation, that is God's taking the initiative to impart teaching to humans, uh, appears around the, uh, the, the Han Dynasty, uh, end of the second uh, millennium BC and, and first two centuries of our era, and that it's closely related to eschatology, that is, God's produce revelations because humans are going very fast down a slippery slope toward a, a final apocalypse and therefore it's high time for humans to be given tools to at least try and save themselves with. And this very close connection between revelation and eschatology remains salient throughout the order of the diverse modes of revelation uh, during the first and second uh, millennium and down to the present day. Um, so what happens during this 2000 years of uh, uh, revelatory history is that we have the continued developments with ever uh, newer modes of revelation appearing, but the old modes are always remaining relevant. There is nothing ever disappears from the scene in terms of ways and means of producing revelation, but the uh, what we might call a revelatory ecology grows ever more complex and diverse. New modes appear, so Philip new niche, allow people to produce new, new kinds of uh, revealed text, but the old modes uh, remain uh, uh, practice and, and, and active. Um, <clears throat> so I was trying to group with this uh, rather fascinating uh, diversity and ever evolving diversity of modes of uh, revelation uh, was hoping that uh, maybe comparative work might help me and might help us to put the Chinese ways of producing revelation in, in a, a larger uh, framework and help us think through this. So this book is not really a full-fledged attempt as such a comparative framework, but at least it, it uh, gestures in that direction and maybe offer a platform uh, on which we can uh, engage in, in comparative uh, conversation. And, and I hope that's what we will do today and that we'll continue doing in the future. Um, <clears throat> okay, now um, the book begins with this very uh, simple question, which is one entry point into the, uh, the, the, the various uh, questions I just uh, put to you. And is what happens when a God is present or is made present uh, an event described with words such as this, right? Uh, uh, a, a God, and I use God in the most gen generic sense. I mean, uh, a divine entity, and that might include 
Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and immortals and ancestors and, and, and all kinds of beings. And I'm not going into uh, theological uh, typology here. That would be very interesting, but it's not the, uh, the topic for today. So we have all these various divine entities uh, arriving in the world and uh, creating events described with words such as Jiang or Lin and Xia. And these verbs are uh, extremely interesting because thanks to the, uh, the, the peculiarities of Chinese grammar, they can be both direct or causative, right? Zhang can mean both a god descends of its own accord or is caused to descend, right? So we can have a god say, I, Zhang, I descend. And you can also have the very same uh, verb being used to describe a priest who makes a godly saint, a, a, a priest, John, such and such a god. Um, so these descriptions are extremely numerous throughout uh, Chinese uh, literature, um, including uh, geographies and stories and, and official histories and, and so on and so forth. Um, clearly point to the fact that these events were perceived as being extremely frequent, but were described in rather generic terms. And this is just an example that I took from uh, the introductory section of the book, taken from a geographic work uh, written in the 13th century about a major god from Seoul, China called uh, Transcendent Lord Xu. His private name is Xu Xun, um, who, is, uh, uh, who has been ascribed numerous uh, revelation of uh, uh, doctrinal scriptures, liturgical texts, and, 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 and other things as well. And here we have a short uh, extract that says in the year 1224, this transcendent Lord Jiang descended at a place called Jinling, and he showed uh, the teachings of uh, loyalty and filial piety and, and, and all of the throngs of people converted to him and, and followed his teachings, right? So we, here we have a, very, a regulatory event that is described by just this single word, mean to descend, call to descend. So how can we analyze that kind of uh, descriptions? Um, of course, it would be, um, possible to reconstruct a kind of stage event where priests or other people uh, as just you know, created theatrically created the, an, an event where God was felt to be present. Uh, but I don't think that would lead us so very far. Uh, I'm not so interested in the sort of uh, uh, religious phenomenology that try to understand what happens in the minds of the people who are witness to that event and reported it, because I think we just don't have, I mean, phenomenology is, is absolutely fine if based on fieldwork, but here for events of the 13th century, we just don't have the sources to do that. What we have, however, as um, indication on how ritual specialists actually created the conditions for such events to take place. Right? So um, I've been uh, uh, conducting my analysis of revelatory event with within as, as much as possible, and of course we don't always have the three elements, but as much as possible within the, the triangle of sources. The first is accounts of the events themselves, either sometimes appended within the revealed 
text or embedded in the reveal text or appended to it as uh, sort of, uh, and that's quite common in the Chinese case. I mean, at the end of the reveal text, you have a short story describing the revelatory event, or you have geographic sources telling about saints and, and practitioners receiving revelations, and you have all kinds of called BG, that is stories or records of strange uh, and, and, and anomalous and, and remarkable events, right? Stories, basically. So we have a lot of those. And of course, we have contents of the revelation themselves. And that's the two kind of sources that most scholars who have been interested in Chinese revelation have looked at. What they have much less often paid attention to is the third uh, uh, tip of uh, our triangle, which is the liturgical prescriptions, the ritual methods through which these events are produced or at least made possible. That's not always available in all modes of revelation, but there is a surprising, uh, surprisingly rich and diverse body of such liturgical prescription. And, and looking closely at those a uh, uh, liturgical text in connection to the contents of the revelation and the narrative accounts allow us to uh, go in deep, uh, go further into an understanding of what really happened uh, in the story, such as the one I, I just mentioned, where we say that the God was descended or was made to descend and teach to humans. So, uh, because I think this is maybe. Uh, the um, the more original aspect of my work, I will uh, focus more on this question of the ritual methods and what the uh, manuals, the liturgical manuals, tell us about uh, the, uh, the the context, the conditions, and, and, and the procedures for uh, producing revelations. Okay, now um, based on. Uh, this question of the uh, the existence or lack thereof of, of, of the, the known codified ritual methods for uh, uh, ritual production, the 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 fact that circumstances for the revelation might be described or not, uh, and a third um, <clears throat> uh, uh, criteria for uh, building a typology of revelation, which is the presence of witness, whether the revelation was a collective event or if only one person was made uh, encounter uh, gods or the revealed text it, uh, itself without the presence of other human beings. Uh, combining these uh, three criteria allowed me to build this five-fold typology. And I'm going to go through it and, and describe each of the five types quickly. And, and obviously, this has both the, the beauty and limitation of ideal types. Um, in obviously, in most cases, uh, revelation have kind of overlap the boundaries and and and, and do not sit very uh, neatly and squarely with one particular type, but I still think that these are useful for us to understand this ecology and how different modes of um, creating revelation are also related to, relate to the content of the, of the revelation and feel different niche and serve different purposes and can be complementary to each other. Right? So these five types are not at all uh, 
a, a way of saying how different religious traditions do revelations or think of revelations differently. Uh, each of these five types can be, I mean, very often within one given religious tradition in, in the Chinese world, uh, these different types can be found uh, next to each other and they serve different purposes and they complement each other, okay? Um, okay, so first, the, the first type or mode will be uh, extremely familiar with all of you, so I don't need to uh, explain it much further. Well, I, I call that the sutra type for obvious reasons in the fact that this type was uh, certainly in, uh, imported into the Chinese cultural world through um, Mayana expansion uh, into China beginning the first, second century of the common era. Uh, we don't see any uh, similar thing existing in the Chinese world uh, before that. And I, as you can see from this uh, table, I um, uh, define a sutra type revelation as a revealed text that do not that does not say anything about the circumstances in which it was revealed to humans, right? So far as I usually uh, reveal or spoken by the Buddhas to or deities or bodhisattvas or, or divine entity in another time and another place. Um, so the, 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 the scene of the relation is not a scene that explain, takes place in human history and we are not told of the where and when how this text first preached in heaven reached uh, humanity. And this, so this, this model proved extremely popular as the widespread circulation of Mayana sutras in Chinese world test, both uh, translated sutras and homemade so-called apocryphal sutras, uh, which as you all know, are extremely numerous and varied. And this model was adopted by the Taoists who have their own uh, similar, they're not called sutras of course, but they are clearly of the same type. We also have scenes of uh, Taishan Laojin or other um, primordial Taoist gods um, preaching in heaven to other gods. And then we uh, are not told when this was translated because this often often uh, imply the process of translation into ordinary human language, how this translation was, and transmission was done. So that's type one. Type two, encounter. Uh, here we uh, have an event that is situated within human history. We are told who, when, and where a given human um, obtained an encounter with a divine being who transmitted either uh, orally or in a writing teaching uh, because that particular human deserved such initiation often as a result of his high merits in terms of uh, you know, moral good actions and or uh, spiritual self-cultivation. And this encounter, uh, even though it might be located often on sacred mountains, uh, uh, happened in, in far away and remote places uh, of limits to ordinary humans, and there was no witness. So this person eventually then go back among ordinary mortals and, and tell them how he benefited from this revelation, but there was no witness and, and we don't know how this happened. And sometimes this is described actually a chance encounter, not necessarily 
something that was predictable from the uh, degree of spiritual um, uh, uh, maturity or advancement of that particular ascetic. Sometimes people just encounter gods by chance and the gods teach them certain techniques or practices, useful knowledge. So let's encounter. Third type is spirit possession. And this is of course extremely common uh, because spirit mediums have been uh, probably the most common type of rituals uh, specialist in Chinese society for as long as we have written evidence and they still are today. And usually uh, spirit mediums answer let gods possess them and, and answer specific questions pertaining to uh, uh, topical questions from uh, individual um, clients. And that would not qualify as revelation as I define it, which needs to have some sort of universal value and, and import, but sometimes it does. And we have written evidence for this as early as the uh, medieval uh, periods, uh, which in, in Chinese terms would be uh, 3rd to 6th century. We have story of spirit medium revealing uh, future events in terms of dynastic change or major uh, wars or uh, uh, providing teachings about um, self-cultivation or telling humans about retribution uh, after death and the way they should cultivate to avoid punishment in health. So that kind of contents that uh, uh, qualify as <coughs> revelation, in, in my definition, uh, uh, open uh, can happen through spirit possession. And so in that particular uh, type, we have circumstances described because we know uh, not necessarily the name of the spirit mediums sometimes, but at least where and when. And we have witnesses. So people, um, spirit possession normally, not necessarily, but usually happens in a community setting. And we have people uh, acting as witness and, and writing reports about it. Because the, the mediums, unlike the shaman, the medium himself or herself, cannot remember anything that happens during possession. That's the very principle of spirit possession. And therefore, we actually need witness to have a, a revelation through spirit possession to be uh, recorded because the medium herself or himself cannot record it. So, um, so gods come to humans to speak to humans as in encounters, but unlike in encounters uh, in possession, we, that's a communal event, not a solitary event. Type four, which I call visualization, is in many ways parallel and opposed to possession. It's a kind of uh, a practice that some scholars have described as self-possession. It's about creating uh, encounters with gods in one's mind. Um, and so inviting uh, gods to uh, join the subject within his own internal uh, mental space. Um, and uh, so circumstances described because the, uh, the, uh, the virtuoso practic practicing visualization is named. Uh, we know when, where, how this happened. 
there was witness. They cannot be witness in any witness in visualization because this happens not in, in public. There's not accessible. The event is not accessible through the senses to other people. Other people might be present, but they would not feel uh, anything because every, the event is taking place within the uh, the, the mind of the uh, of the practitioner, not in and not nothing audible, visible, sensible <clears throat> would be accessible to others. Um, and by contrast to spirit possession, the ritual meadows is known and codified. I'm not saying that uh, spirit possession is not a, a codified um, method, but it's not supposed to be something that is reproduced. The whole story of uh, the narration of events of spirit possession is that the, the gods has full agency and decides um, uh, whether they should come down and possess the medium or not and what they are going to say by contrast because it's the original specialist who has the was agency and who can call and summon gods to come and for that reason visualization is qualified right there is a method then you can learn and train yourself in and follow and that will produce the uh, the desired event and finally type Five, sorry for, yeah, thank you for bearing with me through this uh, rather long-winded <laughs> description of my typology, but that's really the core of what I wanted to share with you today. Type five, I call presence type revelation because we have all three elements. And that uh, that uh, is documented, seems to appear in the historical records later than type the first four type all of which were already present and well-documented in medieval times. So again, like third to sixth century. Presence type seems to appear around the 10th century. It's very closely linked to um, a new wave of Taoist uh, ritual um, methods and practices, uh, largely linked to um, exorcistic and therapeutic rites that uh, is based on the active sense, sensible presence of martial gods, very fearful uh, uh, deities, uh, especially not, not only, but especially thunder gods who are the uh, enactors of divine law and therefore punish sinners and demons and, 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 demons and, and protects their, their followers. Uh, the presence type uh, 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 revelatory events are also uh, described in, in terms of where and where they happen. They are usually communal. It's uh, part of uh, communal celebration and rituals, so they are witnesses. And the, actually a, a major element in presence type revelation is that the audience can be made to feel the presence of the gods, either see them or hear them or them in another way and, and quite often all of those uh, sensory um, experiences together. And the ritual methods for producing this divine presence is known and actually described in, in rather rich details in, in the uh, ritual liturgical manuals of these new Taoist movements that I was alluding to and that are found in the Taoist canon. Okay, so here we have a typology that is um, 
chronological in a certain way. It, it, it tells about the, uh, the, the gradual unfolding of uh, a full array of different modes that produce different kinds of text and that uh, uh, in, in certain, uh, sometimes um, like uh, uh, cross fertilize and, and spawn all kinds of new ways of um, producing revealed text. But these are the three, the five main types under which I think we can um, sort out uh, the, the story that we have and the text, the revealed text that, that we have. Okay, so now I'm maybe I'll use like 10 more minutes to talk a little bit more about this, the, the, the last of these five types, the presence type, because uh, this is the one I've been working most with and, and actually the bulk of the book is about this. Um, so in this particular type, the presence type, uh, the role of the priest uh, uh, creating the uh, the divine presence that leads to revelation is 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 crucial. And these so these priests rely on codified methods. They are trained for this, and they are uh, often described in the historical sources. Actually, masters of creating divine presence, and people go to them saying, "Yeah, master, please, I would like to see or hear this and that, of God. Please make it." present for us right so this is really their um their their, 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 their the, the tool of their trade right making people feel the presence of the god and 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 being able to converse with the god and receive teachings or instructions from the gods so these techniques are very formalized uh, which does not mean that it's common knowledge. These liturgical manuals were transmitted within uh, priestly lineages from master to disciples, so they were not like open access uh, uh, knowledge, but still uh, they have been uh, codified and, 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 and copied, and, and now they are available to us because the Taoist canon has become fully available to scholars during the 20th century. So witnesses. And so, and within, uh, because they are often we have lots of descriptions that that show that these were uh, group events and and uh, and really shaped by a group dynamics uh, <clears throat> orchestrated by the agency of the priest and also the agency of the god. Uh, in, and in these uh, presence type rituals, the god is uh, usually described as allied to the priest. Um, with different kinds of uh, relationships, sometimes sworn brothers or uh, uh, initiated uh, uh, priests as initiated disciples of the gods, but still having, uh, whatever is the case, having a very close bond and relationship that uh, where the, the, the rights and duties of both parties, priests and gods are clearly spelled out. And therefore, even though gods of course, have their own agency and can decide what they do and what they say. But priests have some sort of control over them and can make them speak, and really depending on the mastery of the ritual, not just on their own merits. Um, and so there are several subtypes of this present uh, presence type of uh, creating divine presence and revelation. And I should uh, add one uh, extremely important point, which is these uh, ritual techniques were and still are, because these are all living traditions, um, usually used to create divine presence without 
any particular desire for uh, a full-fledged revelation. Right? They are usually uh, used in the course of producing rituals or asking for a salvation for the dead or healing of the humans or expelling of plague demons or all that kind of things. And that does not, as I use the term, does not count as revelation, but they can in certain circumstances. If, if one is really interested in obtaining teaching instructions from the gods, then the gods might, the priest can use the same techniques to ask for scriptures or instructions or other kinds of uh, discursive contents from the gods. But they are usually, these techniques are usually used for creating divine presence without uh, a revelation. Okay, now there are several subtypes, uh, all using this, the same word, same verb, jiang, descent, or make descent, which I introduced earlier in the, uh, in, in the talk, um, and which are qualified by the kind of sensory events that this ritual production of divine presence leads to. And of course, these are not exclusive. Often we have a combination of these different sensory uh, experiences. So one is the physical appearance. We see the gods, we see uh, its uh, shape, we see it moving, right? Uh, the voice, the Zhang Yen or Yu means talk, uh, oral talk. Uh, so we hear, then, then we, the priest produced the uh, event of hearing the, the voice of the gods, the writing, which uh, by the 12th, 13th century becomes the most common mode, uh, because it's particularly useful in ritual context. Daoist ritual is all about exchanging documents um, between humans and gods. So the humans burn petitions, prayers, and so on and so forth. And the gods respond in kind, right? So they approve the documents and they write answers or they issue formal documents like ordination documents or that kind of writs of pardons, that kind of things, right? So making the gods write is actually uh, extremely uh, 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 crucial in making Taoist ritual work. So spirit writing, becomes uh, the most common subtype of presence type ritual, but still we have to understand it in the in a, a framework of other subtypes. And another important means is dreams, right? Inducing dreams, and there are also rituals for that. I mean, in Chinese world, there are temples where people go to obtain dreams from the gods, and this is also induced by priests in uh, pretty much the same way that uh, the priests also produced the uh, writing or the uh, speaking uh, presence of the gods. Um, and so I was uh, saying just a moment ago, this uh, even straight writing can obviously be used for all kinds of purposes, writing poetry, conversing with the dead, producing scriptures, um, all kinds of things and in the modern period producing spirit photography or spirit painting all kinds of you know documents uh, on paper um, I think the original impetus for the development of this technique that eventually became the most common way of producing revelation in Chinese uh, societies originally was getting a, a written response from the gods in the course of performing a ritual and so making sure that the ritual worked its purpose. And in many rich, uh, liturgical manuals from the early modern periods, which means 11th to 15th century, 
um, we have clear and, and straightforward uh, explanations saying that when a priest sends a document to the gods, there are several ways through which uh, he or she, usually he, can obtain a, a response. Technical uh, Taoist ritual uh, term is bowing. Um, and that can be uh, divination blocks. This is very uh, easy to manipulate, but it's it's a bit crude. You basically, when you throw the blocks, you basically get a yes or no. Um, visually, visualization, that is uh, getting an audience with the god and hearing the god's uh, response to the, uh, to the request, the dreams or writing. But when you did documents like uh, ordination or uh, appointment among uh, the divine bureaucracy, um, certificates, that kind of things, then spread writing is most definitely the, the most convenient way to obtain what one needs from the gods. There are some early cases where uh, spread writing is not yet uh, full-fledged writing, that is legible uh, Chinese language, uh, but there are signs um, but written on an ash table, uh, ash table, a table covered with ash that is uh, prepared for the gods to uh, walk onto or to write into. Uh, and here in a ritual, uh, liturgical manual of the, uh, the Mongol Yuan period, 13th, 13th, 14th century, we add um, uh, here a, a, a Description of all the signs that the gods might write on the ash and how to translate this into normal language. So we have that kind of thing. But then this quickly gave way to real, re directly written, legible uh, language, uh, I mean, written with Chinese characters. Right? And so this is spirit writing. And so we see spirit writing appearing as a ritual tool among uh, the exorcistic uh, priests of the early modern period. And then it becomes uh, much more popular and much more widely practiced around the turn of the uh, um, uh, 16th to 17th century. And by that time, it becomes the, by and large, the uh, most common way of uh, producing revelations, of producing um, morality books, uh, doctrinal scriptures, poetry, instruction for self-cultivation and so on and so forth in the Chinese world. And we have, and this is still the case today, and spirit writing is very much a living tradition. It's banned in the, in the PRC, in, 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 in uh, People's Republic of China, it's still practiced more or less discreetly in certain parts, but uh, it's practiced very openly and very commonly throughout the rest of the Chinese world and Taiwan, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, uh, Europe, North America, and et cetera. Um, and we have, and, and this is a, a rather, uh, it's both common and, and easy, uh, reasonably easy uh, uh, ritual techniques to learn. And as a result, we have tens of thousands of books that are produced through spread writing and still new ones appearing uh, by the day and usually immediately uh, published on the internet. And so we have all kinds of groups, all kinds of contents, but the, uh, the key elements is that the, the disciples, so here we have uh, on the picture that was taken uh, in, a, in a small spread writing shrine in an apartment in Hong Kong, 
we have uh, one medium wielding the, the writing uh, instrument, writing on the ash table, so that one person, but we have other techniques with two mediums, and you have also techniques without a, a medium wielding the writing implements, just writing implements move by itself. So it's actually the whole family of different uh, spirit writing techniques that we encompass within the, the larger uh, uh, ethic category of spirit writing. But one thing all of those different uh, practices and traditions of spirit writing have in common is that the members, so that includes the, the medium here and the person sitting next to her, which also a very crucial role is noting down what is written character by character on the ash table onto paper. And of course, the God can after that do proofreading and correct anything that was written down uh, mistakenly. Uh, but also the other members of the group that are not necessarily acting as medium themselves, but are still you know, taking part in the event, co-producing the event, maybe paying for the uh, printing of this revelation and performing rituals and, and doing charity works and all that kind of things. And all of the members are taken as personal disciples by the gods. And it is this personal bond between disciple and gods that explain the whole uh, uh, emotional charge and the dynamics of the spirit writing groups. Uh, the scalatological inspiration is always there in, in the spread writing tradition, sometimes more prominently, sometimes like in the background, but it's always there. Spread writing is described by the god themselves as a very uh, efficient and, and time effective and cost effective techniques to reaching out to many humans uh, in a short uh, period of time. And it gives a voice to uh, literally thousands of different spirits from the high gods that uh, speak through spiritiums throughout the Chinese uh, world to more local gods who only have one particular uh, mediums giving a voice to them. So the, the, the gods through spirit writing write all kinds of things. So this is a very quick um, typology of contents, morality books, scriptures, liturgy, geography. Uh, spiritual uh, cultivation uh, instructions, uh, records of discussion between the humans and their divine masters, and, and so on. And time is running short, maybe one more minute about the kind of things that are not actually in the book, but which I am doing now <laughs> to give you just a, a preview of the uh, next step of my work around spirit writing and the way spirit writing shapes the life of individuals that take a part in them. As, as I said before, looking at the, uh, the intense emotional sociability be between the humans and the gods and how this shapes individual and collective lives. Um, and the way spirit writing uh, allows for subjectivation uh, of both the humans, who, build themselves into unique, strong personas through the interaction with the gods, but the gods themselves as well grow into personas the more they speak and, 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 and interact and talk to humans. And so the gods express themselves, they all want to have their personal style, they all speak and write in their own personal style, they all have their individual stories and they love to tell their individual stories and remind their humans uh, who, who are take part of wisdom in those writing societies of how, how unique they are. And this is my really last slide. I'm 
one of the things I'm doing now is uh, using historical social network analysis to look at the connections between humans and gods and also between the god themselves. And this is just a visual visualization of a data set I've made of 13 different sprite writing altars that involves almost 500 gods and all the black um, dots on this visualization are gods. So you see a smaller gods on the, on the uh, outside of the visualization and at the center you have larger gods who are very uh, strongly connected between each other and to all of different human groups. And this kind of visualization, I think, help us understand the dynamics of creative writing and how this is a self-reproducing dynamic. And the more gods become central and talk to different gods and different humans, then they, they grow into bigger persona and, and, and then want to speak even more. So I'll stop at that. Well, thank you, Vincent. That was a really wonderful uh, summary of your work. And uh, thanks for that extra bit that's not in the book. Very interesting. <laughs>